In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is God's word. All right. You guys would uh, pray with me. I need to recenter myself a little bit, to be honest. I'm feeling a little, feeling a little silly right now. All right. Heavenly Father, um, God, we are <sighs> genuinely grateful to be here right now. We are grateful to be in a place of believers where we are worshiping you. God, I was thinking earlier myself and just how grateful I am to speak of you, um, to be able to spend some time just sharing about you, hopefully not from myself, from my own mind and intuition, but something that you have blessed and something that you have anointed, not for cool points for me, but for others that they would receive it. God, I think that first and foremost, we are here right now for you. And we center ourselves around you at this very moment. Lord, uh, I want to pray for the minds and, and I would say even more importantly, the hearts of those out there, that they would receive a word that would be to them like water to a, to a thirsty person, that it would be food to a hungry soul, that it would be meaningful, that we are preaching something with power and with influence, something that centers us in you, which is exactly where we need to be, is, uh, is focused and just grounded in you. So would you please keep us there, Lord? at least for this moment, and then we'll pray to you again later. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Last Christmas, uh, I was spending a little bit of time with my wife, Annie, and her family. We had a bunch of kids around, of course, so we put on a movie, a movie I hadn't seen in probably a few years, but I'm sure many of you guys are familiar with, called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, you know, honestly, as, as memes to death as that poor movie is, I would say, having watched it for the first time in a while, it's, it holds up. It is, uh, it is genuinely as good as, uh, as it was when it released. It's, it's very fun to watch. Gene Wilder has a great performance. It's very colorful and dynamic. And it's really fascinating to me that this movie is about this central figure who, for the first half of the movie, is this complete enigma. This, you know, dude who is like the Elon Musk of candy making, and somehow the whole world is just focused on this guy who just makes chocolate bars and, you know, all different types of gum and things like that. And he doesn't make an appearance in the first half of the movie. All, all there is is this wild, like, speculation about who this guy is and these kind of thoughts about appearances and, oh, well, I saw him or I heard this crazy thing about him. And I love the first scene that he appears because you've got these like crowds of people kind of gathered around the gates to his, the factory, the chocolate factory. And you see him kind of start to come forward in a from the distance and he's got this like strange limp and he's holding a cane and he's just kind of like, you know, painfully moving along towards the gate where all the people are just hushed in complete anticipation. 
And about 10 to 15 feet shy of the gate, he just stops, like frozen like a statue. And then he sets his cane aside and he starts to fall forward. And you think this dude's about to face plant into the earth. And he performs this perfect, flawless somersault and just lands on both feet, completely unharmed, and everyone loses their mind. It's like this crazy, like, oh my gosh, that was crazy. And it's so strange. And if you're a movie dork, like, you know, my, my wife and I are, you may know this story. But if you don't, the kind of backstory to that is that Gene Wilder, the man who played Willy Wonka, actually asked the director to have that scene added. Like, not just the, the walking to the gate, but specifically the fake fall roll and, you know, spectacle. And the reason he wanted to add it was because he wanted the audience to believe from his very first moment on screen that this figure of so much speculation and so much thought was completely unpredictable. I think that's so interesting. Now, we're here in the Gospel of Mark. We've spent the past two weeks considering not so much Jesus, but actually John the Baptist, who's kind of like the, the intro act that gets the crowd warmed up before the uh, headliners come on. John is, as we've said before, he's the last of the prophets. He's kind of a wild man. He's wearing camel fur. He's eating locusts. He's, he's kind of a strange dude. And he's sent by God to call God's people, essentially to say, get ready, because the one that we've been talking about, the one that our faith has centered around for thousands of years, he's right around the corner. He's about to be here the rescuer of the world. And if you're a, a Jewish person or a Roman citizen in this part of the world, I'd say around 25 or 30 AD, you're surprisingly kind of like the people who were waiting outside the gate of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. You're, you know, hushed with anticipation your mind is full of all these ideas of what this, you know, much talked about person is going to come to be. You've heard a lot, none confirmed. You've heard a lot of things about him. You've never seen his face, nor is the person sitting next to you. And he's coming right down the driveway. And when you see him, he suddenly proves himself to be wildly unpredictable, uniquely unpredictable. Now, I'll throw a little sidebar here. This will probably be the end of the Willy Wonka is a type of Jesus character references I'm going to make. Uh, but let me just say, as I did more thinking about this throughout my sermon work, I was like, There's the, the analogies do not end there. Um, so if you want to talk about that after service, I'd love to. If not, no problem. When Jesus appears... The prophet John, as we discussed last week, is baptizing people in the river. And as we already said, baptism is kind of a weird, controversial thing as it is. Baptism doesn't find its place as a ritual in the Mosaic law that Jews and Israelites have been following for hundreds of years. It was kind of this random ritual that was put together unauthorized, that was really for people who were outside of the Jewish faith to have their sins cleansed and to remember God's promise for rescue. 
If Jesus was a predictable savior, he probably would have just, I don't know, stepped up on a soapbox and waved to everyone saying, hello, it's me, Jesus. I am, I am the Christ who you've been waiting for. If Jesus was a predictable savior, he would have patted John on the back and said, hey, great work. I got it from here. Then, I don't know, maybe floated into the air, showing everyone that he was a godly person and, you know, started playing Let's Get It Started by the Black Eyed Peas over a Bluetooth stereo. Jesus could have done many things predictably, but he doesn't. He doesn't do anything like this at this point. He actually steps into the line of confessing sinners and he asks John to baptize him. Now, if the question, why is Jesus getting baptized is popping up in your head, I want you to hold it there because that's really gonna be the center of our entire message tonight. And the answer is, TBD, really, really not 100% sure. And to add to the, the mystery of this vision, uh, at the moment of his baptism, this incredible spectacle happens where the skies rip open and the, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a, like a bird. And there's this voice booming out that everyone can hear or maybe only a couple people can hear. We're not really sure. And it's the voice of God saying, this is Jesus. This is my boy. I love him a lot. He's a great kid. This man is different. This man is unique. He's a little mysterious. So as we continue the early part of our journey in, in our series titled Encountering Jesus, I think tonight we should ask ourselves just who we are encountering. Definitely not a predictable guy. A unique man, to say the least. And so we'll walk through a few points, kind of uh, fleshing that out. Our first point is this, Jesus is unique in his humility. Jesus is unique in his humility. The first thing that stands out about this story is, of course, the, the, the great humble act that Jesus takes. If you were with us last week, we were kind of talking about what, what do we have to do to prepare ourselves to encounter Jesus? And the response was, we have to act like these people in the Jordan River. We have to humble ourselves. Now, this doesn't require painstaking, perfect repentance, this doesn't require us cleaning our whole lives out of all of our flaws and mistakes and vices. It just means being willing to say, I am not who I should be. I don't do the things that I should do, even though I try and I need help, preferably from God, asterisk, whoever God is. It's a very low bar, but God is gracious. And he gives us great things for a small amount of faith. But if we go through that list of things and we say that the people getting baptized were sinners and people confessing their wrongs and who were not what they ought to be and who were not doing the things they should, Jesus doesn't fall into any of those categories. Jesus is exactly who he ought to be. Jesus is a sinless person. Jesus is God. 
What on earth is a God doing being baptized by a sinful person? In one of the Gospels, John is going to ask that exact question. He's going to say, shouldn't you be baptizing me, Lord? This seems a little topsy-turvy. And Jesus' answer, which is kind of shrouded in enigma, which we're going to get into more, is I have to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. That is not exactly a clear answer to me. But we'll get to that. We'll get to more of that. But Jesus doesn't fit into these categories of those who should be baptized. He's not flawed. He's not outside of the faith. He's not a sinner in need of repentance. And so what we see it as is not Jesus not knowing what baptism is or Jesus making a mistake, but we see Jesus portraying himself as humble, as willing to be not just at the, at the shore of the riverbanks watching people get baptized and as they come out of the water, he gives them a big hug and says, ah, my son, thank you for your obedience. But Jesus actually goes a step farther. He goes into the water, where that, the, the same water that's washing sins from sinful people and he steps into that water and he allows himself to be dunked in it himself. Jesus is making a profound display of his humility, of his willingness to put himself low, to be near those he loves. It's incredible to think that last week we were talking about how the responsibility that we have if we want to encounter Jesus is we have to humble ourselves. When people with pride, pride I'm sorry, when, when people with proud, prideful hearts come to Jesus in this gospel and throughout the Bible for an encounter, he usually kind of shuts them down. Or he'll point out the thing that's standing between them and him. And he, he says, look, uh, if, if this is what you're asking me, then I need you to handle this first. We need to come to him humbly. But the incredible thing is that the same place that Jesus is calling us into is the place that he's going into first. He meets the sinners in the water he goes before us. Anything and everything that God calls us into is only after he's already been there himself. When God calls us to love, he calls us to love because he's perfect in love. His love is incredible and overwhelming and overflowing. When he calls us to love, he's not calling us as some, you know, statue of a judge standing in the midst of clouds. No, he's calling us as someone who is love itself. When he calls us to die, he calls us as someone who has tasted death and conquered it. Everything that Jesus calls us into, whether it's humility, love, death, or a myriad of other things, he's already there. He's already done it. Jesus will never call us into a pain or into a trial that he hasn't already experienced to the nth degree. There is no pathway that we're called to walk that is not covered with the pre-existing footprints of God. He goes before us everywhere we go out of love. And that's the first thing that we see 
about this unique, mysterious man named Jesus. Now, here's my second point. Jesus is unique in his Trinitarian self. Jesus is unique in his Trinitarian self. Good luck spelling that, note takers. Now, Jesus appears very briefly in the fullness of what we call the Godhead, this this fancy word that means the essence of God, where we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, on a, on a doctrinal level, this is very interesting because before this, people don't really have any even initial grasp of what we talked about with the kids earlier, this idea of the Trinity. People don't have any kind of idea of what that really is. But I think it's important to acknowledge this at the very least briefly because it shows that Jesus, because I think the temptation when we see Jesus as the son of God is almost to see Jesus in the same way that you would see someone in Greek mythology like Hercules. He's just some guy with this godly, I don't know, silhouette around him who can do things that others can't, but he, he wasn't there at the beginning of the universe or anything like that. But what we see in this random, just completely isolated glimpse in this passage is it's almost like you see that triangle forming of just those three points just flowing from one into the other and then out of the other into the next. This image of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons made of the same substance. Like we see Jesus now not just as a guy, not just as son of Mary and Joseph, we now see Jesus as someone who is literally eternal, before time, before creation, the son of God and God himself, perfectly God, perfectly human. This, you know, can kind of sound like doctrinal muckety-muck, but when you really get down to the brass tacks of it, this is explaining just the profoundness of who Jesus was. That he could be a person that you could have a conversation with face-to-face, but that behind what we can see with our mortal eyes, there's actually something deeply mysterious and profound about who he is. This is the definition of uniqueness. There was never before a human being like this. One of the creeds in the, from the fifth century says, we believe in one God and three persons and three persons in one substance not mixed in persons, not divided in substance. There is one person of the Father, one person of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. They are all one, equal in glory, and co-eternal in majesty. That's a lot of legal terminology, to be honest. But it's saying that the person that we just saw stand in line behind a bunch of sinners, be baptized by a dude in a very uncomfortable-looking camel hair jacket, he is much more than we could imagine him to be. There's a grandiosity to Jesus that's almost awe-inspiring, almost 
frightening, to be honest. There's something so much bigger here than we could imagine. Which leads us right into our third point, which is that Jesus is unique in his mystery. I think mystery has been such a fascinating word for me to become acquainted with just over the past few years. I think that, and I've shared this with some of you guys, uh, for, for a long time, my understanding of God, I think, you know, as a dude who's pretty anxious, who's kind of an overthinker, when I kind of came to faith as a teenager, I was excited at the idea of studying theology because I thought, now I can understand God. Now I can put God under a microscope and figure out the functions of this great divine being and understand him. And for a lot of years, I tried very hard to do that until I realized I'm, a, I'm, 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 I'm attempting an impossible task here. And so this idea of mystery came both as a, a deep source of frustration, but also as something very liberating that God appears to us as bigger than we can imagine, that Jesus appears to us as grander than we can understand, not so that we can be just utterly baffled and confused and turned off by him, but I think in the same way that a child understands their parent. Children can't understand all of the things that a parent can. You ask a five-year-old how, how, how their parents pay the bills. What, what it looks like if, uh, you know, your parent gets called into the human resources department at your job, how to, how to clock mileage on a, on a form. These kids don't understand this stuff. There's a mystery there that for children, which we all are, can be deeply frustrating. But for a parent, we know that they know exactly as much as they need to. When we see Jesus in the gospel of Mark, we're, we're going to see a lot of these interactions where Jesus is going to be asked for something or he's going to be asked a question and he's not going to always give a direct answer. Like we talked about his conversation with John the Baptist earlier and John the Baptist is like, why, why am I baptizing you right now? Jesus could have been like, oh, well, actually, the reason that you're baptizing me is because, you know, if you don't, then, uh, then this isn't going to happen, and, then, and that'll make this a lot more complicated in a couple of years, and that, that's going to affect, you know, the, uh, uh, all, all these other crazy things. Like, he could have, like, just unfurled a long answer, but instead he said something like, so that all righteousness may be fulfilled. I, I just imagine if Annie got home and was like, John, why, did you do why didn't you do the dishes today? any, so all righteousness might be fulfilled. It's a non-answer. Jesus loves to give these very cryptic answers at times that aren't very easy to, to, to digest and to understand. Jesus loves to do these things called parables where he's, he's telling a story that's meant to have this deep lesson. But I, I love that sometimes he'll teach a parable to a crowd full of people. And then when he explains it, it's actually not in front of the crowd. He only explains it to his friends. It's like, shouldn't they know the answer too? And Jesus is like, nope. I told them exactly as much as they need to know. What does that mean? We, we, we struggle with the same type of 
you know, trying to untie these deep, logical, philosophical knots when we read through these encounters with Jesus, where we're just like, Jesus, look, I, I, I know you love me. That's great. That means a lot. Um, it seems like you've got your head on straight, which is amazing, but I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus is like, I think that's exactly the point. And it's like, no, Jesus, come on. Give me something more than that, please. Jesus finds himself giving us mystery. And I mean, like, think of the people that come to him. People will come to him asking him theological questions. And he won't answer it directly. He'll ask them leading political questions, seeing, you know, which side of the camp can I really get you on? Jesus doesn't give him a straight answer. Sometimes Jesus moves towards a big crowd of people and performs these beautiful miracles and people are healed and the sick are are, are healed and the lame are walking. And sometimes Jesus sees a, a huge crowd of people and he moves away from it. Why, Jesus? I don't understand what you're doing. Jesus is unique in ways that are compelling to us and are beautiful to us and are awe-inspiring to us, but sometimes he's so unique, it's frustrating. I don't understand what your plan is here. And so as we work through some of these encounters throughout the book of Mark, we're going to find a Jesus who, again, we can trust and we'll get to that. A Jesus who we should be putting our hope in, and we, should, and we can get to that. But sometimes his uniqueness is literally so grand, it's confounding. It's confusing. It's frustrating. And so that leads me to, I think, one of the major questions that we're going to kind of close our, our, our time with, which is, what, what good is an unpredictable, sorry, what good is an unpredictable, uniquely mysterious savior to me? What good is an unpredictable, uniquely mysterious savior to me? What good does he offer if I can't understand? You know, during the time of Jesus's life, there were a lot of people that didn't appreciate the type of mystery or the type of person who was anointed as the son of God. A lot of people would have preferred for Jesus to be a strong, iron fist, military leader. And so his deference from that was frustrating. Others just wanted him to be a a profoundly insightful religious teacher, just waxing philosophical all day long. Someone at a champion Someone that a warrior, someone that a poet, someone that a punisher. People always had these expectations of what they hoped Jesus would be, and Jesus didn't fit their roles for him. One thing that Jesus' baptism does is it shows the first of many paradoxes of Jesus, which is, you know, these two true statements that seem to contradict themselves. Why is Jesus a sinless man going to have his sins washed away? Why is Jesus, the king of all kings, so opposed to people fighting for him in a military sense? Why is Jesus the savior of the Jews, but most religious Jewish leaders don't seem to like him very much? Why is this sinless man about to be baptized? Who is this God who is three people in one? 
Who is this man that heals some but doesn't heal everyone? Who is he? At times in our lives, I think that we'll find the uniqueness of Jesus Christ to be the greatest thing in the world. I think we'll find it captivating. I think we'll find it compelling and beautiful. And sometimes I think it'll drive us crazy. Sometimes his mysterious self will draw us in and sometimes it'll push us out. And I think the hardest place to accept this is during a time that I think many of us are in today, a time of confusion, a time of despair, maybe, a time of depression, a time of grief, a time of suffering, a time of just life not being great. We'd like some clear answers, Jesus, please. I don't want the mystery. I mean, what really is lousy is that the world around us is already incredibly unpredictable and brutally so sometimes. It's already hard enough to endure the painful mystery of a world around us, especially when we know that the face of the God that we serve is in many ways unclear. You know, I think it's interesting that for many, of, many years, for I think even for a couple hundred years, just us being kind of Western, living in this context and history, we're all basically functioning like scientists. We want to understand. We want to simplify. We want to examine. We want to we see something directly in front of us. We want to understand the function. We don't just want to see something and just be fine with it. We want to see something and say, how does this work? How does this add to my life? How does this take from my life? What, what can I do with this? We want to take that, that engineering mindset. And so what do we do with a God who's willing to be known, but not always understood? You know, I've mentioned this before. I, uh, I work in, at a hospice provider in Green Valley. I'm a chaplain, which means that I sit with a lot of families who are um, basically having a loved one who's about to pass. I also spend time with those loved ones as well. Uh, another side of my job that I haven't talked about as much is that in addition to that role, I'm also a bereavement provider, which means that when the relative who's been terminally ill does pass, I will spend usually up to like 13 months or so continuing to check in and just provide support to the family who lost their loved one. A lot of times I see this story and it happens more and more than you would think that people who live in Green Valley, most of them are not from Tucson. Rarely, most of them aren't even from Arizona at all. What I often see is that people will kind of build their life, build their wealth, their success, their careers, everything in the Midwest, in the Northeast, parts of the country. Then they'll see Green Valley, this, you know, tiny little, like, nice and warm place with lots of golf courses. And they'll take their spouse out there and they'll, and they'll just kind of enjoy a peaceful retirement community separate from their families and separate from their loved ones. And then what happens is one of them gets sick and they feel completely isolated. And then that sick loved one dies. And that's one of the people that I've been meeting with, and I'm gonna call him Frank for this, uh, 
for the sake of keeping him private. And Frank is someone I've been meeting with for about five months, and I love Frank with all of my heart. The dude is a very emotional guy. And I think he struggles being a dude in his 70s with the idea that being emotional and crying a lot is, is acceptable, and I have to be like, it's okay, man, it's all good. And my, I love the first phone call that we had because uh, I call him and I say, hey, I'm a, I'm a chaplain, but I'm, I, I, my condolences about your, your spouse, I'd love to come in and visit you. And he's like, chaplain, huh? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, you're, you're going to read some scripture verses at me or something? And I said, no, no, it's, it's whatever you want. I'm just, I'm just here to support you. Like, no, I, I don't have an agenda. My agenda is to be here for you, Frank. And he's like, all right. So I come and we have a conversation and I, I don't have a sermon to preach for him. I'm just asking questions to the dude. I'm just getting to know him. And we talk for about an hour and a half. And as I'm leaving, he says, thanks for not doing the whole prayer thing for me. And I'm like, no problem. You know, I'm just here to help. And uh, eventually Frank starts going to church. And he hadn't been going to church for a very, very long time. But he gets connected with a couple people in his little retirement community and he starts going to a little mainline Lutheran church across the street, and he goes to Saturday evening services, and he's been going for a couple months now. And I was talking to him, and I said, and he, I'm sorry, and he said to me, you know, people ask me why I go to church, because when my wife was still alive, we, we never went to church. And I said, what do you tell him? He said, I say it's because I need his comfort. Because when I walk in that church, I feel better. And I have the not so great burden of trying to help him understand where what role God took in his wife getting cancer and dying. And I tend to speak pretty open-handed. I don't take strong convictions. It's easy to wax about that stuff, you know, intellectually, but when the stakes are pretty high, I tend to keep my mouth closed. And he doesn't always understand what role God took in his life or the role that God takes in his life today. But he told me that he, he still cries all the time. And that he cries in the morning and he cries when he gets into his bed because he's the only person in it. And he said that whenever he finishes crying, there's always this moment of silence and he just feels better. And he told me, I'm not sure what that is, John, but I think it might be God. I think that God might make me feel better. Frank is a guy who does not have a theology degree like I do. Frank is a guy who could not explain the Trinity. Frank is a guy that doesn't understand what role God took in his wife and what role God takes with him today. Frank is comforted by a God that he doesn't understand, by a God whose face is covered with mystery. And I would hope that anyone in this room could walk into this room every Sunday with this same kind of posture of, I come to encounter a God that I don't always understand. 
and a God who sometimes breaks my heart. But he gives me hope, and that hope makes me feel better. I hope that's what anyone in this room could say about this mysterious, unique God. You know, Andy and I often close our sermons pointing our eyes to God's promise that he's going to redeem and restore all the brokenness in the world, the brokenness in our hearts and the brokenness all around us. And we often use this phrase, this promise that God has that he's making all things new. And I want to just say, like, within those three words, all things new, there is a world of mystery. There is a world of mystery. But there's hope. And the hope is what we're called to stand on. I'll close with saying this. One interesting insight that we do get about Jesus' baptism is that later on, when he's talking to some of his disciples, his disciples will ask him a pretty silly question, as they will often do. Hey, Jesus, when you're reigning on your crazy throne of power, do you think me and my brother could like sit next to you and have a little glory too? And Jesus' response to them is, are you guys ready to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you ready to be baptized with my baptism? So that indicates a little bit of light about his baptism in that he's talking about his death. When Jesus is baptized in the beginning of his ministry, from the very beginning, it's pointing towards the end of his ministry where he will die. Jesus' ministry is going to be bookended between two forms of perfect, loving humility. The first of a symbolic death and the second of a literal death. And so that, I think, is the anchor of the hope that we strive for when we ask ourselves, how am I supposed to encounter a God who I don't understand and a God who sometimes heals the, my neighbor and leaves my, my door unopened. I think the anchor of our hope is that we are loved by a God who cares for us tremendously, not to the point of sending love from the ivory towers of whatever celestial heaven he lives in, but that he himself would experience the suffering, the pain, the loss, the tragedy, the trauma, the death that breaks the hearts of my friend Frank. A God who loves us tremendously is our hope for a mysterious God. And he's a God who is worth encountering, I would say. So let's pray. Father, I, uh, I thank you for uh, your goodness over us. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you that uh, in some way your mysterious, unanswered, frustrating distance that we sometimes deal with is probably doing something good. I think we can believe that. And... Uh, 
we can trust that even when we don't understand, even when we don't always see what the next step looks like, that you are still with us, that you still love us, and that your perfect presence is actually encouraging us to be just as present with everyone else around us, that your encounter with us is not just to give us this you know, little island of faith separated from the world, but that you're actually linking us together with people who can care for us, even imperfectly. Lord, as we encounter you, as we encounter you even in ways that are just sad and challenging and, and make us angry and frustrated, would we always hold on to that hope that you've given us, that hope that has continued to breathe in the world all around us where you've put your, fit, where you've put your footprints? Would you help us to love people around us as well so that your presence is reflected to all those who need you, especially those who really need you. Would you uh, comfort us now, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we are going to respond to the word proclaimed right now in three different ways. Uh, the first is going to be gathering around the table for the Lord's Supper, which I'll get back to in just a moment. Uh, the second is going to be through musical worship, which Mike and the, uh, the band are going to lead us into. This is a way of taking uh, words that proclaim all the good things about God and sometimes even the challenging things about God. It gives us an opportunity to express them vocally in a way that actually kind of digs them down deeper into our hearts. And the last one is through giving. We have a giving box. We also have a tablet that uh, is there, question mark? Not there. We'll figure it out. Um, but if you'd like to give, uh, I'm sure we'll find a way for that. Cruz is going to grab it now. And uh, we believe that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, and that just as he's given us so many good things, he calls us to be just as generous and selfless with everything as well. So we, uh, we're called to give, and we encourage all of you to give as well. The night that Jesus was about to be crucified, Jesus sat face to face with his friends and he broke bread and they drank wine and he told them, when you guys do this, I want you to think of me. And again, this strange enigmatic way of saying something that carried very little meaning, but has been filled with so much meaning by the action of his crucifixion and of his death. So that we now, as Christians, and have done this for every Sunday since Jesus established the church, we'll break bread and we'll drink wine and we'll remember the love and the perfect just grace of God that he would suffer on our behalf and then we experience the blessing of his presence as we take the bread and as we take the wine. So I invite everyone to come and take from this. Even if you've got that tiniest little tiny little sliver of faith that you can put faith in a God that you have hope in, that you don't fully understand, you're welcome and invited to the table to receive Christ here. Um, to prepare us for that, to prepare us for all three of these, we're going to take a quick two-minute break where we're going to have time for confession. This is time for you guys. This is time to just pray silently, um, you know, in your seats, and, uh, and I'll kick us off with that now. Father, we thank you again for uh, all the ways that you have been kind to us, and that you've shown mercy to us. Lord, we recognize as we reflect on our weeks that we 
uh, have, have dropped the ball in several areas. We haven't loved you as well as we should have. We haven't loved our neighbors as well as we should have. And even, Lord, we haven't loved ourselves as well as we should have. We've, you know, been, got, been caught up in, in selfishness. We've been caught up in, in just prioritizing things falsely. And, and sometimes, God, we just put in our best college try and we still fell short. And so, Lord, we just present all of that to you right now, humbly acknowledging that we need you, that we need your forgiveness, that we need your grace. And Lord, we ask that as we pray this, that we wouldn't be hit with these terrible thoughts and feelings of shame and guilt that only come from the enemy to tear us away from you, but that we remember that you are perfectly faithful to those who confess their sins to you, and that if we confess our sins, you will forgive them and cast them as far as the east is from the west. So Lord, I pray that you would just be with each of us right now, helping us to confess our sins and then giving us that hope and that joy of forgiveness, Lord.